For many parents, the lost children are still a very important piece of their family, a part of their family that's still very much alive in their heart. And for me and others I've met, it brings joy to talk about Macy and your lost child. I have a friend that every once in a while she'll text me and she said, hey, I just saw a butterfly today and it made me think of your Macy and I know she's watching over you. And just that little small thing. Wow, I mean, my day gets made. Macy Ann McLeod, baby daughter of Robert Michael and Sharon McLeod, went home to be with her Lord and Savior Friday, August 5th, 2005. Surviving, in addition to her parents, brother Connor McLeod, maternal grandmother Nancy Delaney of Stewart, Florida, paternal grandfather Robert Lee McLeod of Tallahassee, Florida, paternal grandmother Barbara Brandt of Tallahassee, Florida, uncle Master Sergeant Kevin Delaney of Panama City, Florida, and Aunt Alice Williams of Tallahassee, Florida. The Macy Song. M is for marvelous, A is for awesome, C is for cutie, I love you, E is for excellent, exceptional little baby, how we love our Macy, yes we do. Pray for our little angel up in heaven, we can't wait to see you again one day. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Raleigh. That was Macy's obituary, but on this podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina, We go beyond the obituary to get a better sense of who Macy was in her short life and the lasting impact she left on her family and community. I'm your host, Jason Gillikin, and on today's show, I talk to Macy's mom, Sharon Delaney McLeod, who reflects on the diagnosis that changed her life, Macy's five-month battle with leukemia, and the special relationships Macy had, and still has, with her family before she passed. We also talk about what happened after Macy's passing, Sharon's grief journey started with anger, and it wasn't until she found help with a group called Compassionate Friends that she was able to channel that energy into something much more positive to the community. And Sharon wants to help even more than she already has, and we talk about what she's working on later in the conversation. You'll also hear about how Macy's family has been so blessed since her passing, it's almost like there's an angel looking down on them from heaven. Back in 2005, Sharon was a local news reporter for WNCN in Raleigh, and life was pretty much exactly how she dreamed it would be. She wrote in a blog post in 2017 that she had it all, the perfect family, perfect job, the perfect life. Yes, we all have those moments in our lives where we think we finally figured out how to make things tick, right? There's always that thing that's out of reach and you're wishing for it and wanting it. And I remember very clearly sitting in Macy's nursery in January of 2005, rocking her to sleep. And I genuinely sat there thinking, I am so grateful. I really have it all. I am truly, sincerely grateful. I have my newborn baby girl, I had my son, who's two and a half years older, in the room right down the hall. My husband was downstairs. I had this great career with the television station in the position I wanted, making a salary commensurate with my experience, living in a great community. I really thought I had it all. And then two months later, Macy developed these bruises on her belly that were not to be explained. Like it wasn't like we, she didn't 
get dropped, nothing hit her. It just wasn't quite right. And as we approached her six-month wellness checkup, brought her in, thinking it was normal. I had brought my son to preschool. I worked nights, two to midnight, so the mornings were hours. And we're at the pediatrician's office, and they're doing all the other checks, and she's meeting all of her milestones on point. She's sitting up. She's sleeping well. She's gaining weight. And then I said, yeah, so, but there's this one thing. And I lifted her little onesie, and I said, why are these bruises here? It's almost like whenever we tickle her, it ends up as a bruise. And they looked at us in a very odd way. And they went outside and got another doctor brought her in. They said, well, we're just going to take a little blood. So they pricked Macy's heel and it would not stop bleeding. Mm. So just those one or two drops that they needed, it was just free flowing all over the floor. And the nurses are running around. They're trying to get, we're holding her leg up. It was all very odd. Another doctor comes in and asks, are there any hemophiliacs in our family? I said, no, not that I know of at all. And uh, then he said, well, I have to let you know her blood counts have come back and they are very off. Mm. And we are actually thinking they could be the markers of what might be leukemia. And I had to stop for a minute and I said, Is, isn't leukemia like cancer? And he said, yes, it's a blood cancer. He said, I can't confirm any of that, but the markers are showing that kind of thing. So we've already called the emergency room out at UNC Children's Hospital, and they're waiting for you. You need to find someone who can drive you there because you need to sit in the back seat and hold Macy's leg up. I felt like I was in a movie floating up above watching this conversation happening below me in the pediatrician's office, like, how can this, this can't be real? She's six months old. She's meeting all her milestones. She looks so healthy. What are you talking about? Anyhow, long story short, what, my husband was out of town. We were all kinds of phone calls in the neighbor. We rushed out to UNC where they were in fact waiting for us. And by the time we got there, they had to start doing immediate transfusions Unbeknownst to us, her blood counts were so out of whack that she had no platelets and her red blood cells had pretty much diminished to nothing. Had we not had that six-month checkup that day, within a few days, she would have started to have had organ failure. Oh, my gosh. And what's so crazy is for babies and young children, they can't tell you they're not feeling well. Right. And as a parent of a little one, it's hard, you know, when you've got little ones and they can't quite explain that this hurts or that hurts. And babies in particular have what doctors called a very high reserve, meaning they can go a hundred miles per hour until they hit the wall. But when they hit that wall, it becomes acute and very critical. Where adults, we have the self-awareness to understand how our body feels that we can start feeling, okay, I'm not feeling so well. I better slow down. I better go see about it. And luckily we got there and they were able to do the transfusions. And the next day they had to do a bone marrow biopsy to confirm that in fact she did have leukemia. And unfortunately it was the bad leukemia, which of course I knew none of these things as most people wouldn't unless you're in the medical field. You hear a lot about, oh, leukemia, kids beat that all the time. Well, there's different kinds of leukemia. The leukemia that kids beat all the time is ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. 
But Macy had AML, acute myeloid leukemia, which is typically found in people in their 60s, not infants. Macy was the youngest AML patient that UNC Children's Hospital had ever had. Sharon and her husband asked the oncologist, what are our chances of beating this? I remember there being a pause and, you know, that's the question I'm sure the doctor didn't want to hear, but at best, it's a 40% five-year survival rate, but not for infants. And he didn't go into that detail. But he was, he remained very, and I can only imagine that pediatric oncologists particularly have to be, they have to remain a certain way to not get completely emotionally involved in their patients. It would be very difficult not to. And so we just, we said, well, we're going to be on the 40% range. She's going to make it. Mm-hmm. She's, this, that's absolutely the only way to look at this. And so she immediately went into 10 days straight chemotherapy, 12-hour infusions that were, AML has probably one of the strongest, most difficult, lethal protocols you can imagine. It's difficult for adults, let alone babies. And she made it through those 10 days, and we were quarantined in her room for six weeks Mm. in the hospital. We actually got to come home the first time on Mother's Day. And her protocol is eight treatments that could take 10 or 12 months, depending on the breaks in between. And I remember when we went back for the second treatment a month later, we stayed in the hospital about another month. She did really well. And then we went home for about another month or six weeks, then went back for her third protocol. And by then, everyone's attitude was a little bit different because Macy was really tolerating this very difficult protocol really well. And I think she was surprising everyone how well she was doing. Everything changed. The way their face looked when they came in, hey, Macy, she's doing so great. Look at her. She's doing awesome. And at that point, they were even sending in the Make-A-Wish Foundation people like, you know, let's talk about what you want to do with Macy when she's finished with her treatment. Like, do you guys want to go to Disney? Do you have another wish? Like, and everything changed. I thought, we're going to make it. We're going to get through this. But even though the chemo was fighting off the cancer, it was affecting the rest of her body too. And after five months, Macy lost her battle. When she was going into her third cycle of treatment, we went into the hospital in July. And what we didn't know is she had caught a bug, a little cold. Oh, yeah. And when you go through that kind of chemotherapy, it's very strong and it destroys your immune system. That's the unfortunate thing about chemotherapy is it has to go in and attacks everything, including your good cells. So she was at basically zero. There was no immune system. And she basically caught a simple cold is what we could determine. And, you know, the typical symptoms of a cold, but then it started to spiral. And she started retaining all kinds of fluid and she was swelling up and she was having these crazy rashes and things were starting to get really wonky. And I remember saying, this is not right. Something's not right. She's not able to even take a deep breath. She's got it like it just everything's not right. And they were giving her different sorts of medicines to try and release the fluid because it was causing blood pressure issues. Anyway, long story short, things went downhill that we ended up in the PICU, which is the pediatric ICU. Mm -hmm. And I remember being down there with her and the doctor coming in and saying, oh, she's." they had given her a few medicines that helped relieve some of that fluid retention that was making it difficult for her to breathe. And there was some relief. And he said, oh, she's not as bad off looking as 
as I was expecting, I think we're going to be able to send you right back upstairs, maybe tomorrow or the next day. So, okay, well, that sounds great. So we spent the night in the NICU and there was blood in her diaper. They were investigating what else was going on. And by the next morning, there was a lot of blood in her diaper. At that point, my husband was trying to work a little bit because, well, we were, I was not working. Sure. And I was so fortunate that the TV station I was working at at the time was so supportive of us. I thought I was going to lose my job and the whole family was on my insurance. And they came to us at the beginning of Macy's diagnosis and said, you take care of Macy, we will take care of you. And they did. That's amazing. Which allowed us to focus on her and not all the what ifs, because we saw many families in the hospital that lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their insurance, lost everything trying to take care of their children. Anyway, but my husband did need to, he was trying to keep things going because not every company can be like mine was. And I remember them saying, we think we're going to have to do some, we may have to do surgery to figure out why she's bleeding. It would be good to have your husband here just because you never want to send a child with zero immunity into surgery. Yeah, Not a good situation at all. And so I had a friend, I called her, I said, I think you need to come and help me out here. And she and her husband called every paper mill in North Carolina looking for my husband. She came and sat with me. There was all these back and forth, the debate, do we do the surgery? Do we not? Do we try to see if it can resolve itself? Anyhow, the decision was made, we should bring her to surgery to try and stop what could be bleeding. My husband arrived, thank goodness, it was at about 3.30 or 4.00 on that Friday afternoon. So he was able to see her before she was wheeled back for surgery. Now, because her breathing had become very labored, they did intubate her. That apparently should have been the signal that things were gone very downhill. I didn't see it that way at the time, which was probably some form of protection to keep the hope up. I could see though, I look back now and I remember seeing everyone else's faces, realizing what was in fact happening. I was still, though, oh, she's going to be fine. We're planning our make-a-wish trip. She's still at 40%. Yes. And so they wheeled her back for surgery. And it was like 4.30 in the afternoon on a Friday. That's typically not when surgeries happen. So the waiting room in the children's hospital was empty. It was just us. You don't have elective surgeries then either. Mm -hmm. So it was my husband, my friend, and I. And- Our oncologist came and said, hey, you know what? You guys could probably go home because she's put on, you know, she's under heavy anesthesia. She probably won't wake up till the morning. You all haven't slept in God knows when. You should go home and get a good night's rest. I'll call you when she comes out of surgery. I'll let you know that everything's okay. I'll update you. I was like, "Mm, I don't think so. I think I'm staying here. And within a half an hour, he started coming out to give us updates that they were now having to start doing CPR, that they were losing her on the table. So what was this emergent surgery ended up taking her life and she was gone. And by the third time he came out to say that she was gone, it was a surreal moment that we could not believe was in fact happening. Yeah. Do you feel like they weren't truthful with you on expectations? I do. Uh, I ended up having what I think was 
the most difficult conversation I've ever had with anyone about four months after her passing, because I requested all of her medical records. It took months for the hospital to be able to provide those. And I had a friend who was an oncologist and a friend who was a nurse go through them with me. So we could really understand why we were so taken aback about what happened and how one doctor could say, oh, go home for the night. She'll be fine. And then she's gone. Yeah. When you said you saw it on their faces that you know it might not yeah, have been- others. Yeah. I think there was- I think there was different levels of hope, maybe. And uh, what in fact happened is she died of heart failure, not of the cancer. And the autopsy ended up revealing that she had beaten the cancer. But the treatment just Mm -hmm. decimated her body. And it took a long time. I was so mad for so long. And I know there's the various stages of grief. And I just was furious with everyone, with God, with everything for a long time. My husband couldn't even speak about anything for a very long time. We'll get to more on Sharon and her husband's difficult path in a little bit and how they channeled that energy into something so powerful and helpful. But first, I asked Sharon to share some memories of Macy and her brother Connor. And then she talks about some of the ways she knows that Macy is still with them. It's so interesting. When we would be out at the hospital and Connor her brother who was so Macy was two and a half years younger than him. So he was, he had just turned three when she was diagnosed. And when he would come out to the hospital to visit, the second he walked in the room, her face would light up like the brightest sunshine, smiling from ear to ear. And she would start jumping up and down in her crib. She adored Connor so much, absolutely loved him. That's so sweet. And when we would be home in between treatments, that was her favorite thing to do is to just sit on the floor and play with her big brother. It was just the sweetest little relationship that they had. Everyone has different beliefs of what is actually around us. And this may sound a little way out there, but there were times that we know Macy came to visit me and Connor after she had passed. And I remember a a few months after Macy passed. So Connor would have been about three and a half, almost four. And we were sitting down having breakfast. And he said, mommy, do you see the lights at night? I said, I'm not sure what you mean, sweetie. Do you mean your nightlight in your bedroom? No, no. The lights that come around me at night, the rainbow of lights. said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, and Macy's inside them. She comes to me. I don't know how a a three and a half, four-year-old makes that up. I believe that happened. And there are also other ways that she comes to me all the time. And it started one week after she passed, the following Friday. I was an absolute wreck. And I was sitting out on my front porch and I was sitting in the swing and I had asked for the name and number of a woman. Her name is Lori Lee, who started the most amazing foundation here in the Raleigh-Durham area called the Me Fine Foundation. Mm -hmm. Lori's little boy, Folden, had died of AML the year before. And she started a foundation to help other families. The reason they called it Me Fine is because he was two and a half. And so he spoke. And 
when they would ask him, Folden, how are you feeling? And he would say, me fine, oh. me fine. And I knew of her. I'd never met her, but the nurses at the hospital gave me Lori's phone number. I called her that Friday afternoon, a week after Macy passed, and I said, can you talk to me? She stayed on the phone for two and a half hours. Wow. And while I was sitting on the swing, and she was talking about how Folden comes to her, too. She said, you will know when she's around you. And it could be the breeze. It could be a wind chime. You just don't know. And at that moment, a yellow swallowtail butterfly started circling over my head and stayed on the porch with me for a longer time than you could imagine. And making me, you know, just, it was very apparent that butterfly was flying around me for a reason. And for me, that is, that is Macy coming to see me. Yeah. And butterflies appear all the time. Butterflies are symbolic of Macy still very much alive. Yeah. Here always with me. Um, you t- kind of talked about your anger a little bit and going through your, your grief process. Can you talk more about the, the grieving? And then also you said your husband couldn't talk to people for, for months afterwards. Did you guys grieve together or was it your separate process? Like how did that work? A very separate process. I will say that I truly believe that if we didn't have Connor, I don't know if we would have ever emerged out of the grief or it was certainly not in this way. Connor being a little tiny boy who's trying to understand why his baby sister went to the hospital and never came home. He was fragile for a while because we were six months of intense Mommy and daddy were never home together because one of us was always at the hospital. My in-laws had to come up from Florida and live with us to help take care of Connor. And so after Macy passed, we tried to get a routine and he went to preschool and I tried to, we spent a lot of time with the families who were so supportive of us. Thank God that they were right there with us, walking lockstep with us through her treatment and thereafter. And they were amazing. I did go back to work because I could not sit at my house anymore, staring at her pictures and getting more and more angry that she was taken from us. Yeah. And so how long before you went back to work? I actually went back to work within a month, which people were like, are you crazy? And I'm like, well, not now, but if I stay at home by myself any longer, I will go crazy. What are you supposed to do? (laughs) Right. I mean, my husband had to go back to work. He found that he had to keep his mind busy. I said, I'm going to have to do the same. Mm -hmm. School had started, so Connor was going back to preschool, and I went back to work. The station had been so amazing to me. I felt like I owed it to them. I went back and, you know, getting up on the news anchor desk and pretending like everything was okay and reading off the prompter and doing my best, and they gave me so much grace. And I tried to go to grief counselors. Didn't work. Went to a psychiatrist didn't work. I did go on some antidepressant medicines to try and help take the edge off, which helped because the anger was eating me up. And then someone told me about Compassionate Friends, Mm -hmm. which is an organization specifically for bereaved parents. And it's parents of any age whose children of any age have passed because it's out of order. We're not supposed to die before our kids. And that was the one organization that helped me. My husband wanted no part of it. He didn't want to talk about it at all. 
And at about November, so Macy passed August 5th, 2005. And in November, I got a call from a young woman named Jane Hoppen, who is a volunteer with the St. Baldrick's Foundation. Mm -hmm. St. Baldrick's Foundation is the world's largest non-governmental organization that raises money and awareness for pediatric cancer. And they do that by shaving heads. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. People shave their heads instead of doing a walk or a run or a golf tournament. You raise money by saying, on this day, I'm going to shave my head. Please support my cause. And she emailed me at the station and said, can we go grab lunch? I was, she said, I met you once at a different fundraiser earlier this year. I just would love to talk to you about something. I was like, okay. And she said, I'd like to do something for Macy. And I thought, oh my gosh, okay. Because people are so afraid to talk to you about your child who has passed. Their, yeah. so their, their intentions are right. They don't want to hurt your feelings. They're afraid to bring it up in case you'll fall apart. It's un uncomfortable for them and everyone. And she brought up Macy's name and said it. And I was like, oh, yes, I'm happy to talk about Macy. Yes, I'll go to lunch with you. She sat across from me and she said, I volunteer for St. Baldrick's and my husband and I would like to shave our heads in memory of Macy. I was like, what? You never even met her. And he said, she said, yeah, but I, I've been following your Caring Bridge site and I feel like I know her and I want to do something to help. I was like, wow, okay. 14 years later, Jane's one of my best friends. Oh, wow. I'm a guardian for her children. I mean, it's pretty amazing the relationship that has been born from this. But what it also did is I found purpose yeah. with St. Baldrick's. And so I said, okay, well, how can I help? I want to do stories about this. 4% of all of cancer research money goes to pediatrics. The rest goes to adults. But yet pediatric cancer kills more kids in the U.S. than any other disease. So I want to help. She said, well, we're looking for an Irish pub locally that could host our event. Well, lo and behold, I said, Niall Hanley from the Hibernians, my buddy. And long story short, what I found was that anger I talked about started to lessen when I found a purpose yeah. to talk about Macy, to help other kids like Macy, to help other families like Macy. I started to channel my anger and my grief into something that I felt could make a difference. And so I was all in on St. Baldrick's. Yeah. And still 15 years later, I'm still all in. Yeah. It's one of my favorite charities that people still all these years later tell me I'm shaving my head for Macy. And in fact, three years ago when I got cancer, I went ahead and preemptively shaved my head because it was the hair is going to fall out anyway. And we did a St. Baldrick's event for me. Yeah. Jane came to my house and we created our own event. Wow. That's amazing that you were able to channel that grief into, into something positive. I think that's what Lori Lee has done with Me Fine. Yeah. We also work closely with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and we do fundraising events for them too. And for me, that's how I have been able to help still talk about Macy because I get to tell her story. Yeah. She's an amazing little girl who I've learned so much from. Yeah. Her little 10 months has taught me a lifetime of lessons in perseverance and courage. And I want to share that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that uh, you and your husband would not have come out of this um, mm -hmm. if it wasn't for your your son. Can you talk about that and any advice that you might have for parents who could be going through this? Yes. Uh, you know, here's the thing. I, I We had to do right by Connor. 
we had to show him that we were going to be able to make it as a family. And I honestly don't know how we would have done that had we not had Connor. And so I don't, for a family who loses their only child, wow, I don't even know where you would start. And it's so heartbreaking because you have that love to share. And I think that A, compassionate friends, the way to go. Yeah. Because there are families there who lost their one and only child. And then find that organization that speaks to you, whatever it is. For us, it happens to be St. Baldrick's and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the MeFind Foundation. Find something that speaks to you and start to help others. Because when you start helping others, it starts to heal you. That work that Sharon is doing with MeFind, with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and with St. Baldrick's has been so important to raise money and awareness for childhood cancer research. But for Sharon, she has another mission as well, and that's to start shifting the conversation on how we talk to parents who have lost a child. Our society in the United States views death in a way that is so taboo. Yeah. And I wish it weren't, because I I think that if we could have more open conversations, it could help those who have lost to heal quicker and better. My parents, I did not know until I was like 16 that I had an older sister. My parents' first child died when she was three months old. Oh. We were never told about it. I, I didn't know. I, I mean, it was crazy to hear that I had this sister. I was like, what? And that was in the early 60s. She died of SIDS. And in Ireland, and in those days, like the doctor came to the house, took her away. There was not even a funeral. My parents' family never spoke of Orla again. Wow. What? Now, she is buried in the family plot in Ireland with no marker. It's just crazy. And... To find that, I was like, well, I'm never having that. That's And apparently back in those days, like if a child died as an infant, it was just one of those things. But my parents fell into very deep depression because it was their first child. And my mom then had my brother, and then she had a miscarriage, and then she had me. But none of this was a conversation. So I grew up in this taboo society, and that's Ireland. Now, fast forward. All these years later in Ireland, very different. They have modernized the way you talk about death. The way I know this is because when my Macy passed, my cousin, who is the same age as I am, lost her daughter one month later, stillborn baby girl that they knew through ultrasounds that she may not make it. But in Ireland, they let my cousin bring her daughter home. Wow. They brought little Lucy home and had a private funeral at their house. They brought in a photographer and took beautiful, tasteful, delicate photographs. And then they did a religious funeral as well. But oh my gosh. Totally different. (laughs) Wow. 50 years prior where you're not even allowed to bring up or speak of a dead baby to now you get to bring her home. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It is. How did you find out, by the way, about your sister? 
at about 16, I, and I'm trying to remember what the, I remember asking my mom about something about my brother, and I can't quite remember how it was. So she And she finally said, well, you know, Orla was born before Kevin. I was like, what? Who's Orla? And she's like, well, that's, that's your older sister. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Repeat, please. And she had talked about how my father went into a very, very deep depression about it. And men, you know, and this is, this has not changed. Everyone comes to the mom of the lost child and pours their condolences to the mom. And oftentimes dad gets left out because he's supposed to be the stoic strength of the family. And I think that's what happened to my poor husband. Not that people didn't treat him differently, but it just is. They, they, The woman and the mom gets showered with so much. And then the guy is just kind of left standing there like, hey, dude, sorry for your loss. But there's never conversation, not never, but it seems less likely that guys are talking to their guy friends about their lost baby. Yeah. Women are more open about talking about that. And so for my husband, I felt like he held his breath for six months. He wanted to sue the hospital. His anger did not subside for about four years. Mm. But what happened for him is because he held his breath for so long in anger. Six months after Macy passed, I had tuber reversal surgery in the hopes that we might be able to have another baby. And my hour and a half surgery turned into five hours. So my husband is out in the waiting room wondering what the heck is going on? Am I going to lose my wife now too? Turns out my appendix ruptured. And had I not been on that OR table on that day, I may not be here. So incredible. You guys are grieving. You're, you're kind of still angry. Like how did you decide, okay, let's try for another one. Let's try for the, the tubal reversal. I kept thinking... If something happened to Connor, I'm done. Yeah. I just I just would I wouldn't be able to move on or move through. Move on's the wrong term, it's move through. Yeah. I was 37 nearing 38 and I said I think I'd like to have another baby. We have more love to give. This is not replacing Macy by any means. I feel like we have love to give and I just, I'm so afraid that if something happened to Connor and not that it's like an insurance baby that don't read that wrong, but we just, we wanted to have a, we wanted to have another little one. Yeah. And we went to my OBGYN and we said, all right, what do we do? Cause I went and had my tubes tied after Macy was born because I had my boy, I had my girl. I thought yeah. life was good. I didn't want any more kids. I had this career, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, you could get your tubes reversed or go straight to IVF. And I was like, what? I had no idea about any of that. We ended up at uh, Dr. Toma's office at the North Carolina Center for Reproductive Medicine. He was an engineer before he was a doctor. And he made this whole chart. Like, if this, then that. If this, with all these arrows. He's like, look, you had no problems having babies before. I think we go for that. Let's try to reverse your tubes. Let's, let's go that direction first. And if that doesn't work, then we'll leave IVF as your last option. Thank goodness he chose that for us. Yeah. He helped us make that decision because being on his table that day for the tubal reversal surgery saved my life because of the ruptured appendix. Yeah. I'm sure you've thought of this before, the positive things that have come from this mm -hmm. in that you know, you have your son. You wouldn't have had your, your, your second son. Yes, my rainbow baby. Your rainbow baby. My, you wouldn't have had yeah. your rainbow baby. You might not be here yeah. today. 
It was Macy's blessing. Yeah. Because there were people who were like, isn't she moving a little too fast trying to have another baby? And I'm like, folks, I'm nearing 40. Right. This has to happen now or it's not going to happen. And when I woke up in the recovery room with Dr. Toma's face over mine saying, why didn't you tell us about your appendix? I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That to me was Macy giving her blessing that it was okay to have another baby. And I may be going down a path that some people might think is a little odd, but it was foretold to me that it would happen this way. I didn't write about this in the blog post, and I think anyone who's had loss has oftentimes thought of maybe speaking to a medium or someone who is very familiar with the afterlife. And a friend of mine, when Macy was in treatment, came to the hospital and said, I'd like to make an offer to you. You can say no. I've never told you about this before because we know how people think it's very odd or strange. She said, but my mother is a medium in Florida. And she would like to do a reading for you. And I was like, okay, how does that happen? She said, well, we're just going to send her Macy's picture. I was like, all right. And so she did. And then she came back to visit with me, my friend. And she said, Macy's going to be okay. Not only is she going to be okay, but she sees images of a girl with long, brown, curly hair riding a horse. She'd be about a teenager. And we're thinking that's Macy. I said, okay. Great. More for the plus column. We're going to make through it. <laughs> so after Macy passed, my friend called me and said, my mother's devastated. And if you're interested, has some information for you. Are you kidding me? Yes, I want to hear. Because we were still reeling that something went wrong in that OR. But weren't you thinking like this medium was kind of full of it because yeah. she, yeah, okay. Yeah. I was thinking, all right, so she got it wrong. Yeah. Not really. I'll tell you in a second. So I did have that reading with her and she went on to describe everyone in the OR to a T. Whoa. Then she said, Macy is showing me earrings. She said, I don't know why, but she's showing me earrings. Well, as I explained a little while ago, the first time we came home from the hospital was Mother's Day weekend. My husband got me and Macy each a set of little diamond earrings. We couldn't pierce Macy's ears while she was in treatment, but the idea was afterwards we would get her ears pierced. And when Macy passed and we were getting her prepared for the funeral home, we dressed her in her baptism gown. And my mother-in-law went to the funeral home, but before she left, my husband said, hey, she had a little Peter Pan collar. And he said, can we put them on her little baptism gown so she'll have them? And no one knew that. No one knew that except the funeral home. And so here this woman 500 miles away in Florida a week later is telling me, Macy is showing me earrings and how much she likes them. What? And then she said, by the way, two older gentlemen are taking care of Macy for you until you get up there. Wow. I have to imagine it's my dad. Yeah. And then one of my favorite uncles. And she described them as well. And then she went on to say, and this is within a week of passing, so we hadn't even thought about the future. She said, you're going to have another baby, not next year, but the year after. And Macy is coming back to you through that baby. Whoa. Now, at that point, I was like, whoa, okay, this is crazy. So then when 
Because your, your tubes were tied and you hadn't. Tubes were tied, yeah. This you how hadn't thought it, about that. Exactly. How is this even possible? And also then when Pierce arrived as a boy, I was like, well, that can't be right. But then when he was born, if I showed you pictures of Macy and Pierce up until six months of age, they're identical twins. Wow. And people would come over to the house after Pierce was born and it would take their breath away. They were speechless. I think that she's very much a part of him. Yeah. He's his own person for sure. I think there's a part of Macy and Pierce. Yeah. What a blessing. For Sharon, she recognizes how blessed she is even through this tragedy and how lucky she is to have found her people to help her through it. And now she's developing a TED Talk to help parents who have lost a child and to help those people who have no idea what to say to them. That's the thing that's like, oh my gosh, it's the worst thing I could ever imagine. And it is. I don't know if there's anything else that could be worse. And because of that, the stakes are so high. And for me, it brings great joy to talk about Macy. For my husband still, 14 years later, it's still difficult for him. And so it's it's a case-by-case basis. But I will say, for many parents, the lost children are still a very important piece of their family, a part of their family that's still very much alive in their heart. And for me and others I've met, it brings joy to talk about Macy and your lost child. I have a friend that every once in a while she'll text me and she said, hey, I just saw a butterfly today and it made me think of your Macy. And I know she's watching over you. And just that little small thing. Wow. I mean, my day gets made by hearing those things. And I started to think about it because here's the question every bereaved parent gets. So how many kids you got? There's the awkward question. And it's two paths, two decisions you have to make. All right. Do I make this easy or do I make it awkward? Do I say, I have two kids, two boys, 17 and 11. They're great. Or I have three kids, two sons, one who's 17, one who's 11. And a little girl, Macy, who would be 14, but she's in heaven right now. And What do you do? It depends on the situation. It depends on the mood I'm in. It depends on how I'm reading this person, if I think they could handle it. And I know sometimes it's just easier. Don't go into that conversation because it, the conversation always comes to a screeching halt. And then, and I always try to say, look, it's okay. I don't mean to put you in an awkward position. She's a part of my family. She is my daughter. Even though she's not here with us right here physically, she's still my daughter. And so that's when I said, you know what? This is an idea worth sharing. And that's what TED Talks are about. Ideas worth sharing. I thought I would like to create a talk that gives people permission to ask about and to start the conversation that is so difficult, but yet so meaningful. And I'm toying with the idea of what to call it, the unspoken conversation. Because the conversation's happening in my head, regardless if you're having it with me or not. But I think it it would be, if it's even I could give like a three-step guide, because people remember things in threes. If I could come up with three very specific things that you could remember when you meet someone who has lost a child, and what you could do to give them comfort, and to talk about the thing that really shouldn't be taboo. Yeah, that would help out so many people. When Sharon gives that TED Talk, Macy will be on her mind and in her heart the whole time. 
And even though it was 14 years ago that Macy passed on, she's still very much a part of the family's life. On August 5th, which is the anniversary of her passing, we always get balloons. Pink balloons, and we send them to heaven. Oh. And in October for her birthday, I usually bake a cake of some sort or some kind of special dessert, and we wish her a happy birthday. Uh, We always go to what we call Macy's Garden, which is the cemetery. And the cemetery, actually, I love to go there. Seems like such an odd thing, but it's a beautiful, peaceful place. And after she passed initially, I went and had picnics with Connor at the cemetery every week. And... That's what we do. We, we usually, and at Christmas time, we always bring some kind of flowers and, and put it over her headstone. There's pictures of Macy everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, you know, a mausoleum or an altar to Macy at all. But just like there's pictures of Connor and Pierce, there are pictures of Macy. She's everywhere. Yeah. And in our front living room, Connor, when he was little, he used to call it the talking room because mm-hmm. there's no TV in there. So all you can do when you go in there is talk. Yeah. And the talking room is also where when people would come to us after Macy passed us, where we would sit. There's pictures of her all over. And and then her bedroom is her bedroom. And it will never not be her bedroom. And I sleep in Macy's room all the time. I get the best night's sleep up there. And it brings me comfort to go and sit in her room. Like when the guests come to visit us, it's not the guest room. Oh, you're sleeping in Macy's room. And we make it a part of the conversation. I force it because she's very much a part of our family. When I see other girls that are Macy's age... It used to make me so sad, and I used to have a difficult time sometimes being around, and I think a lot of parents would describe a similar thing. When you're hanging around other families who have children the same age as yours, and now you're seeing everything that yours will never get to do, that still catches me. Yeah. Because I think about she would be a freshman in high school now, and she would probably be taking dance lessons, and she would be doing all these things that I dreamt for her, and that's never going to be. And so to see other friends who have daughters the same age and trying vicariously to think how it would be to to be a mom of a girl and doing those things, it doesn't hurt as much. It used to kill me to think of all the things I don't get to do now, but now I'm I'm okay. I still wish for a lot of it, but I'm okay. You kind of went into advice. Any other advice that you would share with with parents? Yeah, I would ask, when I meet someone else that's lost a child, the first question I ask them is, would you like to talk about that? Or if not, that's okay too. Yeah. And I just very simple like that. And I would advise when you meet someone who's lost a child and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. Would you like to talk about your child with me? Or if not, that's okay too. And open the door. That's the whole thing. It's because it's the awkwardness of when you first find out and then it's like the huge elephant in the room. Well, what next? So the simple question is, hey, would you, could you tell me about her? And then the person will either say, oh, I can't talk about it. Or thank you for asking. I'm dying to talk about my child. Everyone's afraid to ask me about him or her. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for talking about Macy today. This has been so eye-opening, and, and thank you for, for sharing this this journey that you've had in your grief. But then also, I'm so excited to see what you do with that TED Talk and, and how you help other people. So thank you so much for coming on Beyond the Obituary here. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate the interest because this is a subject matter that should be talked about. Death is a part of life, and we just have to think of it in a new way. We do have to think about death in a new way. It is a part of life, and just because someone has died, it doesn't mean that we can't have a relationship with that person. Thanks again to Sharon Delaney McLeod for sharing her story today. And thank you for listening to the Beyond the Obituary podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina. On the show today, Sharon mentioned several organizations that have helped her, and she has helped out as well. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the MeFine Foundation, St. Baldrick's, and the one that helped her out when she was struggling the most, Compassionate Friends. We'll be sure to put the links to all those organizations in the show notes. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jason Gillikin, for Happy Hippo Digital. If you like the show, please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or simply tell a friend or share on social media. That would mean a lot to us. Until next time, I'm Jason Gillikin, and you've been listening to Beyond the Obituary.